Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke, and today we're going to journey into some dark spaces, places often left untouched and quietly discarded in the corner of history, always within reach, but often out of sight. We're going into the mind of the Nazi, four Nazi war criminals to be specific, Robert Ley, Hermann Goering, Julius Stryker, and Rudolf Hess. I'm joined by Joel E. Dimsdale, psychiatrist, professor, and author who, in his latest book, Anatomy of Malice, The Enigma of the Nazi War Criminals, seeks to diagnose these four Nazis in an attempt to make sense of their horrific crimes. Thank you for joining me today, Joel. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So you write, doctors are historians. We leave notes behind, not just because of our fallible memories, but also to guide future care. What sort of notes did the Nazi war criminals leave behind? The notes come both from the war criminals and from the doctors who interviewed them, as well as the interrogators and court transcripts. Some of the uh, war criminals wrote extensive uh, autobiographies, uh, letters uh, to their families. Some wrote some published uh, uh, autobiographies, published uh, posthumously. But most of these notes come from people who were observers in the prison at Nuremberg and in the peculiar prison prior to Nuremberg. When the war was winding down, many of the Nazi leaders were rounded up and corralled into a very peculiar luxury spa in Luxembourg, uh, Mondorf to be precise. The Palace Hotel was a luxury spa, but it became known in classified circles as Ashcan. And at Ashcan, all of the, the prisoners were cordoned off and held for some months of interrogation while the Allies were trying to decide what to do with them, how to mount a trial, what would the rules of the trial be, and importantly, where would the trial be? So we have uh, interrogation notes from Ashcan in Luxembourg, and many of those notes are readily available in archives uh, throughout the world. But there were also medical notes from the medical officers uh, at Ashcan and uh, subsequently at Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. For instance, Hermann Goering came to Ashcan with a uh, significant opiate addiction, hmm. and he needed to be uh, essentially detoxed from the uh, opiates that he'd been using. And uh, there were concerns about how to do that safely. An American psychiatrist uh, from California, Douglas Kelly, uh, was brought in to supervise 
uh, Goering's detox, and he became quite friendly with Goering, spent a lot of time with Goering at Ashcan and subsequently in Nuremberg. So we have conversations, diaries written by Douglas Kelly, the psychiatrist, and Gustav Gilbert, the psychologist, concerning their interactions with the war criminals. Some of this was very formal. Uh, the, The prisoners were held in solitary cells, very small, kind of 10 by 10, and um, for suicide precautions, there was very little furniture uh, in the room, and um, the prisoner was sandwiched on a small cot between the psychiatrist and the psychologist, who interviewed uh, each prisoner extensively, spending up to 80 hours with each uh, prisoner. They also administered psychological tests. Uh, They administered uh, uh, an IQ test and uh, Rorschach tests. And um, so there's a a wealth of information available, but it has largely been lost, forgotten, sequestered. Some of the reasons that this information has been lost pertain to what the psychiatrist and psychologist observed Mm -hmm. and what this did to them Hmm. as well. If you can imagine sitting so close to evil smelling it, listening day in, day out to justifications uh, from the prisoners, I think it would elicit an emotional response from most people. And regrettably, both Kelly and Gilbert developed very strong responses, uh, uh, which kind of reverberated in their lives. Kelly and Gilbert were very different people, and they had a very different world view. Uh, They came from very different backgrounds, and they saw the prisoners differently. In addition to their world view, they were quite bright, aggressive, uh, competitive people, and both of them rushed to... Uh, try to publish their work, uh, be the first uh, with the news uh, of of their findings. They got into terrible arguments, uh, threatened lawsuits, and as a result, this stuff quietly got shelved. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, what I've found is that You might go to archives anywhere in the world, and frequently you'd have no idea what would be in the archives. The the research libraries and archivists might have a box that says something like uh, Nuremberg, June 1945, and you have no idea what's, what's in that box, nor do they. 
their task is to protect that, to, to guard it. And uh, they have so many boxes that frequently they've never uh, opened them themselves. So all of these sources provided extensive history. You know, trying to understand someone from the past, it's like going to a, a museum and looking at a, an old sculpture from Etruscan or Roman or Greek uh, period, and, and most of these sculptures are blasted away, and, and you have to kind of fill in the blanks as you look uh, to see an ear here, a nose there, a chin, and you try to imagine and uh, generalize from what you have in front of you. Well, the data from the Nuremberg war crimes trial is so extensive that you don't have to generalize very much. You don't have to fill in the, the, the blanks uh, a great deal because there is so much data. The problem is finding it and trying to resolve the discordant voices. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, looking at Goering specifically, he was called during the Nuremberg trials uh, and I quote, a supreme egotist and a consummate liar, but a charming rascal. What would your diagnosis of him be? I, I think the descriptions are pretty consistent about mm -hmm. Goering. Uh, another uh, uh, wonderful summation of Goering uh, was an amiable psychopath. <laughs> uh, Goering... Uh, could be charming when it was in his interest to be charming. Uh, he could be vicious. Uh, he uh, was quite malleable uh, in the way he portrayed himself to others. The um, He was very close to psychiatrist Douglas Kelly, mm -hmm. uh, Kelly was a kind of a fixer for Goering, uh, brought letters from Goering to his wife. Uh, at, at, at one point, uh, towards, uh, towards the end of, uh, of the trial, as the trial was very much in process, Goering asked uh, Kelly even to adopt his daughter, Etta, uh, Kelly declined, but uh, Goering, Goering uh, uh, was a very shrewd observer of people, and uh, when he felt somebody could be useful to him, he very much cultivated those relationships. Goering is a little different, uh, different from the others. I mean, I, I selected four of the uh, Nazi uh, leaders because they were all so different from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I should say that I, I focused on the leaders because I was interested in the people who could least well claim 
to be cogs in the machinery of state. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people who uh, were cabinet ministers who had a great deal of power, authority, discretion. Yeah, that, that brings up an interesting question. I would think for the majority of Nazis, they, they probably weren't necessarily devoid of empathy or wired for malice or something like that. So under what circumstances can an average, relatively stable person participate in something like this or even because of uh, an atrocity like the Holocaust? Well, I, I'd like to hasten to, to emphasize that my book really pertains more to the leaders than the average person in Nazi Germany. I do believe, however, that sadly, I'm, I'm pausing to pick my words carefully. The issue is, what is the default position of humanity? How easy is it for human beings to uh, uh, devolve into brutality and cruel behavior? Mm -hmm. I think, regrettably, it is far easier than we wish to believe. Mm -hmm. The uh, Greek philosopher... 5th century B.C., Bias uh, famously said, most men are bad. Hmm. Uh, I think it's very easy to turn people to the dark side. And uh, the miracle and the joy of humanity is that there are some amongst us who can still resist that uh, temptation and be, uh, be a force of light. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting uh, in the modern era, I guess, or, or today, you know, on TVs and movies, we're often now confronted with people doing horrible things. And oftentimes these are the the main characters of the show and we find them sympathetic in a way. Walter White in Breaking Bad, Tony Soprano, Dexter to name a few. What effect does this sort of sympathetic bad guy have? And it sort of sounds like it relates to somebody like Goering, who, you know, even the people there to analyze him may have found some sort of commonality with him or found some way to relate with him. What do you think the effect of this sympathetic bad guy in pop culture is having on society? Look, we read the the papers, we watch TV, and we're filled with... Uh, horror at episode after episode of brutality, mass killings, terrorism, and we wonder how people can do that. Uh, I, I think the main point of my book is that malice is not monochromatic, that there are indeed many different shades, many different varieties of malice. There are people like Goering, uh, who were uh, very skilled uh, uh, at reading people. Uh, there were people like Julius Stryker, who was so distasteful that 
everyone loathed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julius Stryker was the editor of uh, uh, Disturmer, uh, uh, a pornographic racist newspaper in Nazi Germany. And he was so loathsome that even the Nazis put him under house arrest for mm-hmm. most of the war. So Stryker was not able to read people. Mm-hmm. He was um, just uh, uh, appallingly filthy, malicious, angry man who had very little uh, to be said for. He, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't charm people uh, <laughs> the way uh, Goering uh, could. Uh, other people and other, when I say malice is not monochromatic, Robert Lay is probably the least well-remembered of the cabinet ministers of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Lay headed the German labor front and uh, was uh, a brutal man who uh, arranged for the execution of uh, the labor union leaders to ensure that the workers in Germany continued being productive for, for the war industry. Uh, Lay is a particularly interesting guy because he was uh, so complex. As I mentioned, he was a brutal man, but on the other hand, in some ways, uh, he was uh, at the forefront of the workers' rights. Uh, uh, He wanted health care for workers. He wanted equal pay for uh, women and men. He didn't want workers to work overtime very much because he was concerned about uh, injuries at work, and he also wanted to guarantee jobs for workers. So he had he had this complex mixture of uh, dedication, involvement, concern, uh, alloyed with... Uh, murderous uh, behavior towards his enemies. The the odd thing about Robert Lay is that he also had major head injuries. Uh, after, uh, in, in World War I, he was uh, in a plane crash which left him comatose for days. And uh, he, following the plane crash, essentially had um, uh, an expressive aphasia, difficulty speaking. He was also a profound uh, uh, alcoholic. And much of his behavior, uh, the the impulsivity that he manifested, could be viewed um, as a, a, a marker of some of the the brain injury he sustained from the plane crash and also a subsequent automobile accident, which also left him comatose for days. Hmm. But the odd thing is that of of all of the war criminals, Lay was the one who expressed the most remorse 
for his behavior. The others were remorseful about being in prison. Right. But Lay was remorseful about his actions. And um, Lay killed himself, uh-huh. uh, uh, strangled himself uh, in the jail in Nuremberg uh, just after receiving his indictment. And um, I think it's largely because of, of his suicide early in the trial that people don't think of Lay don't remember him very well mm-hmm. but his death didn't didn't end the riddle of his behavior because Lay's brain was um, harvested and sent to Walter Reed uh, 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 for analysis and um, uh, there was a great deal of interest and speculation about what the slides and what the neuroanatomy revealed in Robert Lay's brain. Uh, the, I guess the fourth uh, person that I studied extensively uh, was Deputy Fuhrer uh, Rudolf Hess. Mm-hmm. And in Hess's case, it's astonishing uh, Hess flew, uh, essentially stole a Messerschmitt plane in 1941 and flew to England on this mad endeavor to try to make peace. Uh, He uh, parachuted out over the sky, landed in a a little Scottish farmyard, and it... it, it, uh, was almost like something out of faulty towers. <laughs> uh, to, uh, this whole odd behavior, and he was uh, essentially hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital in uh, Great Britain for uh, uh, four years. And we have uh, numerous notes from those hospitalizations, and. Um, uh, uh, Hess himself had actually signed a release saying he authorizes release of, of any of his psychiatric records because it will prove uh, that the Jews are controlling the world through mind control. Uh, there was a lot of interest in Hess because his behavior was so peculiar mm-hmm. Uh, there was a suspicion that that Hess uh, may have been psychotic, uh, but there was also a peculiar lapse of memory. Hess complained that he couldn't remember a thing, um, and some of that amnesia appeared to be malingering, but some of it seemed genuine. Uh, so the doctors tried to give Hess truth serum or an amatol interview to see whether that would uh, restore his memory. It didn't do a thing, but, but, but we have all of this information, uh, and uh, it's, it's um, information 
that is sometimes in logical places like the National Archives or the Library of Congress, but frequently the information is tucked away in people's basements uh, uh, or or uh, libraries that you might wonder what would be the connection between University of California, Santa Cruz, and the Nuremberg War Criminals. Uh, but in fact, many of these records are in these unusual places. And basically, for years, I have been working, trying to track the information down. I got into this 40 years ago, maybe mm-hmm. 45, under very peculiar circumstances. I had been publishing some articles about uh, Nazi concentration camp survivors and how they coped, and it got a, a little bit of attention uh, in the local uh, news. Mm-hmm. I, I was working at Harvard at Massachusetts General Hospital, and one day there was a knock on my door. I opened the door, saw a stranger carrying a, a gun case, and he said to me, are you Dimsdale? I said, yes. And he said, I'm the executioner, and I have come for you. Whereupon he pushed his way into my office, sat on my psychiatric couch, and opened his gun case. uh, And uh, out of the case came documents and he went on to say that he was the Nuremberg executioner, the hangman of Nuremberg. And he told me, Dimsdale, you've got to start studying the perpetrators, not just the survivors. I was not too anxious to pick up that dark topic mm-hmm. and shelved it for, as I say, many, many years, but it lurked back there, and um, that was largely the impetus for this book, The Anatomy of Malice. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's it's obviously a very dark topic, as you say, but also a very interesting one. Um, and Joel, I just want to thank you for uh, for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for your interest. Uh, The book is Anatomy of Malice, The Enigma of the Nazi War Criminals, and it's available now. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.